You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. CISA and its partners issue a joint advisory on the Hive ransomware-as-a-service operation. Ransomware continues to trouble governments internationally and at all levels. The U.S. Defense Department may see enhanced authority to conduct offensive cyber operations. Russian attacks on Ukrainian infrastructure remains kinetic as missiles show up, but cyber attacks don't. Kevin McGee from Microsoft speaks about leveraging cybersecurity apprentices. Our guest is Paul Georgie from XM Cyber, describing creative attack paths in enterprise networks. And hey, Blue Post, don't mess with Google's lawyers. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, November 18th, 2022. Yesterday afternoon, the FBI, CISA, and HHS released a joint cybersecurity advisory on the Hive ransomware group. As of November 2022, the advisory says, over 1,300 companies have fallen victim to Hive ransomware, and the criminals using the ransomware as a service have received some $100 million in ransom payments. The advisory says, Hive Ransomware follows the ransomware-as-a-service model in which developers create, maintain, and update the malware and affiliates conduct the ransomware attacks. From June 2021 through at least November 2022, threat actors have used Hive Ransomware to target a wide range of businesses and critical infrastructure sectors, including government facilities, communications, critical manufacturing, information technology, and especially healthcare and public health. What should organizations do? The advisory provides indicators of compromise and tactics, techniques, and procedures identified through FBI investigations. Hive has exploited Microsoft Exchange server vulnerabilities. The FBI, CISA, and HHS have some recommended steps that can be taken against Hive. These include finding and ejecting Hive operators from networks, installing updates for operating systems, software, and firmware as soon as possible, and requiring phishing-resistant multi-factor authentication. The BBC reports that government networks in the Pacific Island nation of Vanuatu remain disrupted and largely unavailable as the effects of a ransomware attack continue. Parliament, police, and prime ministerial networks have been affected for more than a week, as have email systems, intranet, and online databases of schools, hospitals, and other emergency services, 
as well as all government services and departments. There's no word yet as to who might be responsible. The Sydney Morning Herald suggests that the attacker's motivation is financial, but the government of Vanuatu is remaining tight-lipped, expecting recovery to be completed soon, but it's not there yet, and digital services to citizens remain generally unavailable. Vanuatu isn't alone in facing ransomware issues. Australia's recent troubles with Russian cybercriminal activity are well known. The U.S., as we've seen, has just issued a joint advisory on one ransomware-as-a-service operation. And in the U.K., the record reports that most of the government's emergency COBRA sessions have been convened to deal with ransomware. Ransomware also represents a growing threat to local governments. Suffolk County, New York, located on Long Island, east of New York City, continues to recover from a ransomware attack that disrupted services. According to the Wall Street Journal, the county's systems have yet to be restored to normal operations more than two months after the initial attack was discovered on September 8th. Local governments are attractive targets for criminals because they combine opportunity and vulnerability. They hold large quantities of sensitive personal information on their citizens, which draws criminals on the grounds that, after all, that's where the data is, and they often remain poorly resourced and ill-prepared for an attack. The Wall Street Journal quotes Chris Cruz, who worked as chief information officer for San Joaquin County, California, before moving to the private sector as public sector CIO for cybersecurity company Tanium, as stating, Too often, these attacks succeed because public schools, municipal governments, and other small government agencies don't have the resources, staffing, tools, and expertise necessary to put forth a proper defense. And much of the technology local governments rely on is old, even obsolescent, and so far beyond its end of life that patches and updates are simply no longer available. According to CyberScoop, a forthcoming revision to 2018's National Security Policy Memorandum 13 is expected to give the U.S. Department of Defense enhanced authorities to conduct offensive cyber operations. The revision is said in large part to address roles and missions, with the State Department playing a consultative role. A source told CyberScoop that successes by U.S. Cyber Command have done much to solidify the Pentagon's role in active cyber operations, stating, Cybercom has been able to notch a bunch of good wins, justifying the argument that having more flexibility, being able to move faster, really does help operations. Cyber Command has also, sources say, burnished its reputation by effective support of Ukraine against Russian cyber attacks during the present war. Moscow continues its long-range, violent strike campaign against Ukraine's infrastructure and population, but Russian cyber attacks still aren't showing up. Russian ground forces are currently entrenching in defensive positions, evidently hoping long-range and indiscriminate bombardment will redress battlefield failure through direct terrorism against civilians. But effective cyber attacks? Not so much, at least for now and the last few months. CISA released two industrial control system advisories yesterday, one for Red Lion Crimson, the other for Cradle Point IBR 600. And finally, Google has prevailed in its court battle against the operators of the Glooptibia criminal botnet. 
Glooptibia, which might be Englished from the Russian as You Dummy, as Google explained in their announcement of victory, a highly sophisticated botnet that used cryptocurrency blockchains to protect its command structure and compromised millions of Windows devices. The dispute began almost a year ago, last December, when Google not only took down some of the botnet's infrastructure, but also brought a U.S. federal lawsuit against Glooptibia's proprietors. The risk of this approach was that it might give Glooptibia a way of enmeshing Google in the tangles of U.S. civil litigation. The upside was the prospect of imposing real costs on criminal operators. This week, Google won its case. Google wrote, On Tuesday, the court agreed with Google and granted our motion for sanctions, entering default judgment against the defendants to hold them responsible for attempting to mislead the court. In an extraordinary move, the court also issued monetary sanctions against both the Russian-based defendants and their U.S.-based lawyer, requiring the criminal actors behind Glooptibia to pay Google's legal fees. This step is particularly important because it shows that there will be real monetary consequences for engaging in this type of criminal activity. Google is not so naive as to think that this is the end of Glooptibia, but they're probably right to say that Glooptibia has sustained enough reputational damage in the C2C markets that they'll find a lot of the hoods who might otherwise become their customers taking their trade elsewhere. Well done, Google. Coming up after the break, Kevin McGee from Microsoft speaks about leveraging cybersecurity apprentices. Our guest is Paul Georgie from XM Cyber, describing creative attack paths in enterprise networks. Stick around. In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple. With Strata, you can effortlessly integrate non-standard apps with any identity service, like MFA or SSO, with zero coding and zero hassle. Designed by identity architects for identity architects, Strata works with every vendor, standard, and app architecture. This means your apps can now speak modern protocols and integrate seamlessly with your chosen identity services. From securing on-prem web apps to migrating away from outdated identity providers or consolidating them, Strata helps you keep your complex access policies as you modernize your identity infrastructure and get rid of technical debt. Join leading organizations like 3M, Dallas County, and CIBC in securing your apps with Strata. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity security priorities, and receive a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. Everybody, I want to take a few minutes here and talk about our sponsor, Splunk. You know, you need to keep operations humming around the clock, but potential disruptions are everywhere. Splunk helps you predict problems and find and fix issues fast so you can reduce risk and ditch downtime. 
The world's largest enterprises rely on Splunk's unified security and observability platform to become more efficient, resilient, and innovative. With Splunk, you can react quickly, evolve faster, and be ready for anything. Stay ahead of disruptions. Learn more at splunk.com slash resilience. XM Cyber recently released research outlining security risks they've encountered on multiple customers' networks, including multi-cloud hopping and third-party risk to Azure environments. Paul Georgie is Director of Sales Engineering at XM Cyber, and I checked in with him for details on their findings. Yeah, so most organizations have a a variation of multiple cloud services. Uh, I think that if we look at what we see most commonly, there's a mixture of maybe a little bit of Microsoft 365, whether it's Azure Active Directory or maybe a couple of like just Exchange Online, but there's services within that environment. And then maybe there's a little bit of the IaaS services within AWS and maybe a little bit of GCP. So these large organizations have multiple clouds um, and it's not easy to replicate security posture or security defenses around each one of these the same way. So when we look at how maybe an Azure Active Directory account could be the start of the breach, and then within four or five stops, end up reading data from an S3 bucket with an AWS, there's not a lot of correlation of risk from an Azure Active Directory account to an AWS S3 bucket. And what we're finding in our results is there is a lot of correlation. Uh, it usually doesn't take a lot of steps. And a lot of organizations are dealing with this risk and not even aware of it. So because we're aware that most organizations are some sort of multi-cloud variant, but still assessing risk maybe just within their own individual clouds and not really considering the risk of how one entity could impact another entity. Uh, That was a really interesting finding for us, making sure people were aware of these risks from multi-cloud because most large organizations are some sort of variation of multi-cloud and need to start assessing risk holistically across all the entities and not just within those individual cloud environments. And how do you propose to go about doing that? Yeah, so that's really where attack path management comes in. Attack path management assesses the telemetry, uh, whether it's vulnerabilities, misconfigurations, or user activity, and assessing that telemetry and then simulating what an attacker can do in that environment. And not just within laptops or servers or domain controllers, but how something like a Lambda function could play a role within AWS to then provide additional privilege escalation or additional assume role compromise capabilities within different environments. So uh, that, that, that really is the heart of attack path management, looking at all of your entities, all the configuration, and then stringing together the realm of possibility from an attacker's perspective, identifying things like choke points. If I know an entity risk to all the other assets in my environment, I can identify it as a choke point and remediate and prioritize risks tied to that entity quicker than maybe an entity that it, there may be a lot of risk tied to it, but the risk it introduces to my critical assets is much smaller. So that, that's really the heart of attack path management is dealing with holistic entity assessment and then stringing together the possibilities from an attacker's perspective. And one of the other things you highlight in the report is is risk to Azure environments, particularly coming from third parties. What did you find here? 
Yeah, so we live in the world where third-party access is just, uh, it's something that we have to deal with. Whether it is a partner portal access, maybe sometimes it's a contractor doing development work. We know that we live in this world where there's going to be some sort of third-party access. But we're seeing these risks start to manifest themselves within Colonial Pipeline or is the contractor accessing VPN with Kasaya. So we know that there are definitely these, these things that are coming up as risks that are starting to play out in real attacks that we're seeing hit the news. But unfortunately, what we're doing to address them is just doubling down on our old legacy processes. Uh, more questionnaires. Uh, we're going to now start uh, putting them in their own AWS account instead of like their own grouping. Uh, and that's not really the right approach. What we need to start assessing is really the risk from those third parties and using this concept of assumed breach. And that is something that we do at XM Cyber is really every breach point is the starting point of an attack. And then assuming those third parties are an assumed breach entity. Maybe it is just a, a disgruntled employee from that third party or some sort of insider threat. But we need to assess all of the ways that third party could potentially introduce risk to my critical assets. And, um, and still we start looking at all the different ways that that could happen. I, I think we're going to just start seeing this more and more commonly appear in the news through these manifestations of public breaches like, uh, like we've seen uh, the last, uh, unfortunately, last year or so. I mean, is that really sort of the through line through the things that this uh, research has uncovered? Is this that folks need to really take a, a look at uh, how they're assessing risk? Yeah, I think that that is the main point of this document. We call it the Attack Path Management Impact Report. Uh, we're going to start releasing this pretty regularly, but it is like our perspective that we're sharing with every organization. And hopefully people start realizing that uh, the way that we're doing things, whether it's just legacy vulnerability management scanning, whether it's assessing risk within the cloud, uh, it's not working. And we need to holistically address our risk and assess all of the entities within our organization and then string together those realms of possibilities from an attacker's perspective. So while we hope this report is informational and makes people more aware of what's going on, we also like to introduce people to attack path management because um, I, I get the pleasure of doing a lot of POCs and demos and uh, you wouldn't believe how many people have never heard of attack path management. And uh, from my perspective, I think that it's something that it seems so obvious and organizations have been doing uh, in, in old ways like pen tests and uh, stringing together what happened during a breach and learning from those exercises, but never proactively running through those exercises to determine how they could better defend um, or architect better defenses and respond more efficiently when they actually arise. That's Paul Georgie from XM Cyber. a lot more to this conversation. If you want to hear more, head on over to the CyberWire Pro and sign up for Interview Selects, where you'll get access to this and many more extended interviews. I'm pleased to be joined once again by Kevin McGee. He is the Chief Security Officer at Microsoft Canada. Kevin, great to have you back. I, I want to touch today on uh, this continuing issue we have with the uh, talent gap. Um, I know you have some thoughts on this and uh, perhaps some areas that are open for innovation. 
Yeah, I think, uh, thanks for having me. First off, Dave, uh, back on the show, love uh, to talk about this topic. And we've talked about this a number of times, uh, innovative ways to address the, uh, the talent gap. And everyone's got different numbers. I think ours is there's 3.5 million security jobs currently open or projected to be open fairly soon. I'm not sure what the actual number is, but we know it's a lot. And we know we're have to, going to have to do something different. And I've often found, and I work with a lot of universities and colleges to have some firsthand knowledge of this, that there's tons of graduates. They're really well-prepared and are aspiring to be cybersecurity professionals. There's tons of jobs opening. How can we not bridge that gap? And, and I've often used the metaphor of an apprenticeship. In accounting, you do an apprenticeship um, or internships or you know, doctors don't just immediately graduate and become doctors. So they have to do residencies. We need something like that for our industry. And it turns out uh, down there in the U.S., you're, you're doing something similar to this and launching a pilot. And I'm very interested to see how it goes. What specifically are you talking about here? So um, the uh, number of your government departments, the, uh, the Department of Labor, Commerce, um, are working with, uh, with NIST and some other uh, partnerships in the uh, community to design a program uh, of apprenticeships. And uh, they're launching this as a pilot. Um, so far, of my understanding, as of September um, 2nd, uh, with 75 days remaining in the, their program, they've had uh, 1,961 uh, cybersecurity apprenticeships have begun uh, through 15 programs. What I love about this is partnerships from different areas of, uh, of the ecosystem coming together, but leveraging existing and proven formats like the apprenticeship programs uh, to deliver um, to deliver some sort of solution uh, to this problem. So will it work? Don't know. Uh, but it's a great opportunity to really try at scale uh, to see if we can find new ways to solve this problem. Yeah, you know, something that I've heard from a lot of people trying to find their place in the industry is that uh, a lot of the folks out there who are hiring are looking for people who are fully baked, you know, who come in with lots of experience. Like, There's a tremendous amount of demand for those people, but that companies are uh, not investing in those early stage employees the way that a lot of people think they should. And I really find it comes down to a question of leadership. We're not teaching leadership. We're not teaching management uh, to cybersecurity professionals. We often promote the most technical person to the role of manager and then wonder why that person doesn't succeed because they don't have the people skills to hire, develop, um, and and really engage with employees. So it's, it's twofold. One, I think we really have to do a much better job of training our managers, training our leaders, preparing younger people to take on roles as well that can bridge those gaps, that can have those skills to develop. And then you're absolutely right. We are competing for talent and just driving uh, price up. Supply and demand kicks in and it's at some point that that breaks. So we need to be bringing in new people to the fold and any new programs that we can find that are successful doing that are going to be uh, incredibly helpful. Retraining programs, uh, tapping um, areas of, um, of the workforce that have never really looked at cybersecurity as a profession can be great opportunities to do that. Is this something you've been doing with your own teams at Microsoft, you know, looking for folks with those non-traditional backgrounds? Yes, and I, I have a history degree. We've talked about it before. I mean, I'm a non-traditional cybersecurity professional. I think the only other precedent I often say is, you know, Jack 
Jack Ryan, who became the uh, historian turns a security professional. But um, we, we work uh, with a number of colleges and universities. In fact, Microsoft has a, a, a global program to invest in colleges and universities, provide free training and um, free certifications, um, and also education for the, 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 um, the professors and teachers. But we're also working on the ground uh, with uh, organizations. So I work with Toronto Metropolitan University has a retraining or a second career program for women, which is excellent. And we've hired a number of candidates that had uh, technical backgrounds and non-technical backgrounds. And when they can go through this intensive program that's very focused on building job skills, they can hit the ground running in a career and become instantly productive. Um, so great opportunities. Um, they're, not, uh, they're not risks. Um, they're great opportunities, um, these, these programs uh, to invest in um, for hiring, but also just to, to work with, um, to volunteer time and assist uh, to get them off the ground as well. All right. Well, Kevin McGee, thanks for joining us. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-plus-year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Be sure to check out this weekend's Research Saturday and my conversation with Larry Cashdollar from Akabai. We're discussing KMSDBot, the attack and mine malware. That's Research Saturday. Check it out. The Cyberwire podcast is a production of N2K Networks, proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Liz Irvin, Rachel Gelfin, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Maria Varmatsis, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Catherine Murphy, Janine Daly, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, Simone Petrella, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next week. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. 
You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. Cyber.